area. Thank you, Mark and uh, Pastor John and Christina and uh, Christy and Kedrick and all of you and everyone else who did anything. <laughs> Prayer team, worshipers. Um, if you've got your Bible, please go to Hebrews chapter 9. Um, Hebrews chapter 9. And we've been <clears throat> in a series a long time ago in the book of Hebrews. And uh, for those, I, I know I sound like I have a cold. I do have something. I don't know what it is. It could be a cold. I don't feel cold, but um, I have something that m- makes it hard to, uh, I'm, I'm not, I gotta try not to get excited because then I'll get a catch in my throat and I'll cough. And so I don't want to have that happen. And so um, unfortunately, the Bible excites me. And so <laughs> we might have a problem. Uh, it was hard to worship today because I was trying not to like sing too loud or do anything um, that would make my throat like go crazy and then I'm like, but I might be healed and I gotta test it and then I did it and then I had a coughing attack and so I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, so I'm not, I don't feel miserable so don't feel sorry for me. Uh, if you had hoped I was miserable then pray for your bitterness but then we'll just, uh, we'll call that good. But if you've got your, if you're in Hebrews chapter nine, let me just catch you up on the study because we did this before Christmas and then we broke for our Advent study, then we did our truly free study. And oddly after the truly free study, now we're in what I call freely open. And uh, I feel like this is just gonna fit so well with what God has already said to us today. But the book of Hebrews itself was written to a group of Jewish Christians who had abandoned the old Jewish faith and they began to put faith in Jesus. It was a brand new thing. It was like, um, it, it's, I don't even think we can fully grasp what, how big this concept is for them to lay aside the old covenant and to take faith in Jesus. But when they did that, what happened was they started to be tortured, they started to be killed, they were martyred for their faith, they lost their property, they lost loved ones. Not only were the the Jews that, that were their brothers then, many of them were persecuting them, but the Romans began to persecute them. No one liked the Christians. And so these men and women who had put faith in Christ and everything kind of went south on them, like you and I, they looked at that and thought, maybe I made the wrong choice here. I mean, after all, God just wants me happy. I mean, if there's any hardship in my life, then that must not be God because God always wants me happy. And the book of Hebrews is written to remind us God isn't as concerned with our happiness as he is our character. And our character is shaped through difficulty. And so what he's doing through this whole book, or she, (coughs) whoever wrote it, I had to put that in there for Mark. Um, So whoever wrote the book, what they're trying to do is remind them that the covenant in Jesus, who Jesus was, is so far superior to the old one. So don't be discouraged by the hardship you're facing. Just be faithful to that covenant because it is true and it's better than the old. Don't go back to the old one. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than any high priest. He's better than any man. He's, this covenant is better than any covenant they've ever understood. It is so far superior. Now that he's in these last couple chapters we've gone through, He's talking about how far superior this covenant is. The sacrifices of, uh, in the Old Testament weren't able to completely cleanse people. They had to continually be offered. Every day they had to bring sacrifices. Once a year they had to offer sacrifices for the sins they didn't know about. And so it's just a constant never thing. But when Jesus came, he was able once and for all, once and for all, 
to bring us into right relationship with God. No sacrifice for sins is ever needed. He is, God is no longer counting our sins against us because of what Christ did for us. So this is how far superior this covenant is to the old one. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he now writes his laws upon our hearts. That's what we learned in Hebrews chapter eight. He writes his laws on our hearts. They're not written on stone tablets. It's no longer, the, the tablets are on the wall and I'm trying to change from the outside in, in the old covenant. He writes them on my heart so that I can change from the inside out. So that even while I'm working out my salvation, I am completely justified before God. Meaning, if I do something wrong, if I mis make a mistake, if I take a misstep, I am no longer guilty before God because the, my righteousness isn't in my behavior. It's in Christ. Now, I don't excuse my sin. I don't say, well, you know, since my righteousness is in Christ, I can live however I want. No, 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 no. That's just as bad of an error. We we are set free to work out our salvation is what Hebrews is talking about. And so in, right before this, we talked about this Melchizedek because the biggest thing for the Jews was Jesus isn't qualified to be our high priest because he didn't come through the tribe of Levi. And so it's hard for them to rationalize, you know, why would God set up this priesthood and then send us a different priest? And the writer of Hebrews in just this eye-opening moment that no one else had talked about or thought of draws them back to this priest in the Old Testament, Melchizedek. They knew who he was. They knew that this guy showed up out of nowhere and Abraham blessed him and gave him a tithe. And he, and he says, Jesus comes from that line. The line that nobody was looking at, no one thought about. That confusing thing, look, that's what God was doing. So Jesus now comes to us as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he's just completely blown their mind about everything. And then we come to chapter nine. In chapter nine, we're gonna read actually verses one through 14. I know the screen only says 12, but we're gonna go to 14. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations, rules, okay? It had rules for worship and a place for worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. We cannot explain these things in detail now. That, I mean, we could preach a series of sermons on that little passage right there, but we're not, we're not, we're not gonna miss the forest for the trees today. <clears throat> Verse six, when these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, meaning they didn't know about them. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open 
as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices the priests offered are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. That old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So he starts this chapter by telling them about or reminding them about the rules and the regulations of the old covenant. It was so very restrictive. I don't know if you've ever read the ending of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. Ever done that? I mean, how many of you have taken verse by verse one a day just to read through the book of Exodus and Leviticus? None of us because we, we hate those books. I mean, it does tell us that God is so detailed and so orderly, and it does tell us, man, he set us free from all this stuff, but it's just a drudgery, and that's what it was. But there was a purpose for it. And so what he's telling us is there were regulations for their daily living. There were regulations for what they could eat. There were regulations for what they could wear. There were regulations for worship and how they worshiped and where they worshiped. There were regulations for the sacrifices. They had to make a sacrifice every single day for the sins they knew about. Then they had to offer a sacrifice once a year for the sins they didn't know about. How many of you know every one of us in this room commits sins that we don't know about? I mean, we're just not aware of them yet or we've become so deceived in our hearts that we don't even pay attention to them anymore or they're just become so accepted by our society and we commit them in error. But the Holy Spirit, if we stay in the perfect law of liberty, will show us those things and now we'll live by a new standard. The standard of God's law written on our hearts, not the standard of the Ten Commandments, not the standard of your church doctrine, not the standard of any mankind, but the standard that God writes on our hearts. And he does this, he gives these restrictions to emphasize that God is holy. And he also does it to emphasize that man is sinful. To show us that man cannot just flippantly go into the presence of God. Sin cannot just easily walk into the presence of God. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So these things are written to show us how hard it is for us to approach God. And under the old covenant, God does what he can do to establish a relationship with the people. This is what he wants. This is what he had in the Garden of Eden. It was taken away when Adam and Eve sinned. God establishes the old covenant to start to show us how holy he is, how sinful we are, and he just begins to show us what it's like to have a relationship with him. Then Jesus comes and he sets us free from all of it. From all of it. All of it. And for them, that's like, I mean, that's like, that's like standing on the altar. I mean, some of you right now are like, dude, what are you doing? 
That is such a holy place. This is not a holy place. This is a bench. And I know that some of you have some great moments where you came to this altar and you cried out to God. And I've taken pictures at times of tear stains on the altars. And I've sent them to people. And some people are like, that is so gross. (laughs) And some people are like, that is so awesome. But here's what I'm telling you. This is a bench. This is a bench. God does not dwell on this bench. He dwells in us. And so he's reminding us, and he gives us just a brief synopsis, and the teacher in me wants to at least talk about it, but um, we're gonna talk about it so ever briefly. He does refer to the fact that there's a temple in heaven and that God showed Moses on the earth how to build the temple, the tabernacle on earth, to build it just after the pattern as, as the one in heaven. And so he said, be careful to build it according to the way I told you. And he gives us the two rooms. There were actually three rooms. There was an outer court that everyone could go to, even Gentiles, but uh, he kind of just goes away from that. And he says there's basically two rooms that the priests minister in. One is the most holy place. And in that most holy place, there's a lampstand, there's a table, there's a sacred loaves of bread, and most of the priestly ministry took place in there. You and I, not from the tribe of Levi, could never go into that most holy place. Okay, only the priest, one of the 12 tribes, could ever go into that most holy place, that's it. Okay, and they did it by lots. They didn't all go in anytime they wanted. They only went in at prescribed times. Then the most holy place where God's presence was, where this Ark of the Covenant was, and where the cherubim was, only one high priest, only once a year, would ever go into that room. And that's where God's presence was. See, Jesus came to restore the right for you and I, all of us, to just any time we want to go right into that most holy place that was reserved for the high priest once a year. And we don't have to go to drip blood on a place because we've committed sins. Jesus did that for us. Now we get to go in there to have fellowship with our Father. But it's so easy for us to slip back into the old covenant. And so much of what we do in Christianity these days is just a a different version of the old covenant. It's not what Jesus came to do. He freely opened the way for us to go in. In fact, in verse eight, he said, when this covenant was established, it showed us that this this holy place was not freely open. Well, that means if that covenant is all, has been set aside and a new covenant has been established, that now we can go freely into that most holy place. It is freely open to us. It tells us in Matthew 27, 51 that at the moment Jesus said it is accomplished, the temple in the, the, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, this massive, heavy, like thousand pound curtain was torn in half from top to bottom. It literally was torn so that it would emphasize we have access. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. In Hebrews chapter four, we already covered this one, but he says, since we have this great high priest who's entered into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, we should come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us in our time of need. The way for us to have access to the Father is now freely open. Don't drift back into the closed one. What do I mean by that? Every religion of the world, including Judaism, including the Jewish people, have rules for worship, 
how you have to behave in worship. They all have places that they go to worship where you have to go to a certain place. You know, we used to call this place the sanctuary. And as I was a a kid growing up, you didn't eat in the sanctuary because that was the holy place. I I am not trying to mock anything and I am not trying to make God seem so irreverent that we should just approach him flippantly. But what I'm trying to tell you is this is just a room. It's just a room where the church gathers to worship together our God. And the holy place is only here if we go into it. I mean, if you come here and we sing songs, this is not the holy place. The holy place is when we engage our hearts in worship and go into his presence. So just going through a form or a routine or just singing certain songs, that's not worship. It's where our hearts are in that process. And it's such a big deal because it it causes us to drift back into old covenant thinking. You know, I can't get a word from God. I gotta call someone to get a word from God or I gotta watch this person or that person. And worship services are important. We'll talk about them. Pastors are important. We'll talk about them. Teachers are important. We'll talk about them. But you and I have direct access to God any time we want it and any time we need it. And so the question that you and I have to think about today is, is the version of Christianity that we're living making Christ's death worth it? Is the version of Christianity that you and I are living right now, does it make Christ's death worth it? Or is it just a form of the old covenant? I mean, are you accessing the throne of God as often as you can? I love the challenge that you don't ever take an opportunity to worship in church. I'm gonna tell you something. Please don't be mad at me, but if you do, I'm sorry. I'm always surprised at the number of people that watch me walk out to use the restroom when I go. Engage your heart in worship. I'm not even asking you to lift your hands. Just close your eyes and just say, God, I'm here for you today. I'm here for you. That's what we're here for. We're not here to to get anything. We're here for you. And here's the thing, when you come here for him, you get lots. But when you come here to get stuff, you probably leave very unsatisfied and you blame the worship leader, you blame the pastor, you blame the player team, you blame everyone else. But it's just that you chose not to engage your heart with the Lord. He longs to give good gifts to his children. And if you'll just engage your heart with him, he will give you what you need. Not always what you want. And even my eight-year-old is learning that our list of wants is way bigger than our list of needs. And so we drift back into this idea of uh, old covenant living. We drift into religion. I'm gonna give you three R words today to write down. The first one is religion. The second one is relevant. And the third one is realistic. Religion, relevant, and realistic. We need to make sure we don't drift into these areas. It's easy to drift back into religion where it's all about this room and it's all about that bench and it's all about the certain songs and it's all about, I love the song today, thank you, Kedrick, for the simplicity of a song that says you're just looking for worshipers who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Isn't that what we've been saying over the last several weeks? That's why we're singing the same songs over and over again. We, we have to understand that it's not about rules and regulations. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, you've died with Christ, he set you free from the spiritual powers of the world. Why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. 
These are human teachings. They're, they're about things that deteriorate and how we use them. These rules seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering your evil desires. No help whatsoever. Just disciplining yourself provides you no help. It's the grace of God. Now, discipline's important. Don't throw it out. We're gonna go there. But our discipline doesn't help us. His grace helps us. The only reason I can discipline myself is his grace. We can't make it about the religious exercise. The danger of making rules and a place over our relationship with God leads to the fights and the splits the churches see often. In Acts chapter seven, we're talking, here's a Stephen who's talking to the religious people of his day and he says, uh, David found favor with God and he asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. That's blasphemy to the old covenant. But he's not in this room either. Only if you and I are here. He doesn't hang out here waiting for us to come back. He goes with us. That's the new covenant. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people, you're a heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever risk the Holy Spirit? This is what your ancestors did and so did you. And so he, he blasphemes their religion and then he calls them stubborn people for not seeing it. And guess what they do to him? They stone him. They stone him. And don't think we don't do that today because we do it. With our words all the time, we stone people that don't do it our way or don't see it our way or don't like it our way. And we emphasize the methods and we emphasize this place over the relationship we have with the actual church, the people of God. And that's so easy to drift back into it. It's not about coming to this room on Sunday. It's about encountering God together. Mark said it so eloquently in, in the call to worship. Um, if only we had recorded that. Then the second word I wanna give you is the word relevant. The word relevant. Because for some of you, religion isn't your thing. And the whole time I was talking, you're like, amen, 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 those religious people. But some of you, it's, a, it's the, the, the issue of what you think is relevant. Now, I know we're supposed to take the gospel and make it relevant to our world. We're not to water it down or change the meaning. We're just supposed to make it fit our culture, which is why we change the songs we sing, which is why we change the fact that I'm sitting at a bench or at a table and not standing at a pulpit. It's why we have a, a, a pallet wall behind me instead of something else, because we're just trying to be relevant to the world in which we live in. We're trying to make it fit the culture that we're in today, but we're not watering down the gospel. There's nothing about what I just mentioned that makes a difference. The message is still the same, okay? And it will always be the same, and if it's not the same, then you need to ask me to leave, because if it's not this book, then I don't belong here, okay? The message has to stay the same, but this idea that we can just pick and choose what we wanna do, we can say a prayer, ask Jesus into our hearts, and then just do whatever we want is not what we're talking about. I can just show up for a church service whenever it's convenient for me or I can serve or I can give as I see fit and not what the scriptures teach or not what God is writing on my heart. There's no connection with the actual body of Christ but I, I'm always in my pew on Sunday morning. That pick and choose mentality doesn't fly in New Testament Christianity. 
We need to make sure that when we, we say, God, I am yours, that we actually mean it. And for those of us that like to just pick and choose how we're gonna serve God or where we're gonna serve God and everything in life has to be easier, I'm gonna jump ship, the scriptures talk to us all through the book of Hebrews. It says you gotta be careful to, the, to pay attention to the truth you've heard or you're gonna drift away from it. In Hebrews three, it says we've gotta be careful that we don't let our hearts become evil and unbelieving and turn away from God. We have to warn each other every day. Well, if we don't see each other for six months, how are we warning each other every day? In Hebrews chapter 10, don't neglect meeting together as some do, but encourage each other every day. Now again, it's not about coming to this room, but to say that we don't need to discipline ourselves or we don't need to come together and worship together, the scripture says we absolutely need to. But in our cultural mindset, we say, well, you know, I just need God. I said a prayer once. I don't really need to be connected to the body of Christ. I don't really need to, you know, find my fit. I don't need to, to do what Hebrews chapter 13 says. I don't need to continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. I don't need to obey spiritual leaders. I am my own spiritual leader. See, this is so foreign to the word of God. Now, I know it's been misused and abused throughout our culture. That doesn't mean we throw it out. It doesn't mean we trust our own human understanding over the word of God. His word is important. And the call to be lazy and indifferent is not a call from God. You're not just gonna coast through your Christian life because you said a prayer once and just make it. You gotta discipline yourself and you gotta ask for grace. You gotta get to that throne room and say, I need grace. I can't discipline myself. I can't read the word every day. I can't pray every day. I can't obey every day. I can't treat people right. I can't even treat good people right. How am I gonna treat my enemies right? Grace, mercy. Grace is not just a covering up of our sin. It's the empowerment to do it. And so we go before his throne. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John, after the day of Pentecost, go by a guy at the gate beautiful that they had seen every day of their lives when Jesus was on the earth when they were in Jerusalem. That man sat at that gate all of his life. They have seen him before. And this time they stop and they say, we don't have silver and gold, but what we have, we're gonna give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Now the important part of that is where they were going. They were going to a prayer service. Well, that's not important. I mean, they, they were in revival. No, they were going to the prayer service that they always went to as good Jews. There was a three o'clock prayer service for Jews that they had gone to anytime they were in Jerusalem all of their lives. And that's where they were going. They were disciplined. See, it's not, it's not that, well, okay, so the religious people make it all about the church service, so let's just throw out the church service. No, let's just make sure we're doing it for the right reason. The scripture tells us to meet together, but make sure when we meet together, we're doing what the Bible says, not just what we say. And on the way to the church service, we see a guy that the Holy Spirit says, hey, stop and heal this guy. And we're like, nope, gotta get to the church service on time. See, that's what the religious does. But the relevant doesn't even go to church, so they don't pass by the gate beautiful, and they don't bring healing to that guy. So we can't just be relevant. And then the last one, is the realistic. 
Pastor Tom, I know that God was so powerful in the Old Testament. Man, that Joseph guy lived in prison for 12 years and just trusted that his brothers weren't the ones that were bad. Um, God just brought him to Egypt and he, he had faith even though he was betrayed and hated and you know he didn't return evil. He didn't take Potiphar's wife when he became second in command in Egypt and cut her head off. No, he didn't do any of that. He trusted that God put him where he needed to be for that time. He saw God's hand in all of it. And he didn't develop a theology around his disappointment. And this is sometimes what we do. Now, lest we be too hard on ourselves, I wanna go to Acts chapter 12 and read you a story. It says, about that time, King Herod Agrippa, I mean, maybe it says President Donald Trump or President Barack Obama, whoever you don't like, began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James killed with a sword. He had the apostle James killed with a sword. And he saw, he had the other apostles, um, or when he saw how much this pleased the Jews, he also arrested Peter, the religious folk. He saw how the religious folk reacted when he killed this guy, so he arrests Peter. And he imprisons him, placing him under guard, four squads of soldiers, and Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover and kill him. But, while he was in prison, the church very earnestly prayed for him. And we're like, oh, praise God for the church that earnestly prayed for him. The night before he was to be placed on trial, isn't it neat that God never shows up like early? The night before. I love that Peter was asleep. <laughs> and he was asleep, it says uh, there was a bright light in the cell. That didn't wake him up. I mean, you ever get woken up by a bright light or someone turns the lamp on and you're like, hey. Okay. Yeah. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him. I mean, now... How are you going to be like, oh, praise the Lord for awakening me? Oh. It's, this Greek word is a very hard blow. He had to wake Peter up, okay? And Peter, this is what's so crazy. His chains fall off, and the angel says, get dressed, put on your sandals, and he did. Get your coat and follow me, the angel ordered, and Peter left the cell following angel. Now, pay attention. He got struck hard. He felt that, Okay? He had to get up after his chains fell off, put on his clothes and his sandals, put on his coat, and then follow the angel out of the cell. But all the time, he thought he was seeing a vision. Well, look at that great man of God. <laughs> what are you talking about seeing a vision? My visions don't hurt. My visions don't require me to get up and do stuff, but Peter couldn't wrap his mind. I mean, James was just killed. And so it's just... God's gonna, we're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. Jesus said it. Jesus said we're all gonna die for the sake of the gospel. This is my time. He didn't, he's starting to develop a theology of how God's gonna operate based on his experience. Quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists, and he's thinking he's seeing a vision. But thankfully, Peter came to his senses. You see it there? Middle of the page. Peter finally came to his senses. And so he's like, the angel of the Lord saved me. Well, yeah, Peter, this is how God operates. But he didn't save James. So why is he saving Peter? I don't know, that's above my pay grade. So I can't really answer that question. And so he realized this, he goes to where they're praying for him and he knocks on the door. And a servant named Rhoda comes to open it. She recognizes Peter's voice. She's so overjoyed and she runs back. She doesn't even open the door and she tells everyone, Peter's at the door. And this church that is praying for Peter says, you're out of your mind. 
What in the world are they praying for? Obviously not for him to be miraculously released from prison. For him to have the grace and the strength as he's executed. They watch Stephen. They watch James. So it's just natural. Peter's next. You and I do the same thing. And Jesus, or God steps in and gets Peter out of prison in a completely miraculous, powerful way to show them, I'm God, you're not. You're in a pit, call out to me. And if you need strength to be persecuted and cut your head cut off, I'm gonna give you that strength. But if I'm ready to miraculously release you, then I'm gonna miraculously release you. But you call on me. Don't create a theology that says, God, you know, I don't know what you're thinking, but just say, God, help me. Give me grace. Get me out of here. In Luke chapter 18, one day the disciples get a story from Jesus that they should always pray and never give up. And they get a story of this lady that keeps going to this wicked judge to try to get justice and the just judge doesn't give it to her but he she finally wins him over because she just keeps pleading and uh, Jesus says this learn a lesson even the this wicked judge rendered a just decision in the end so don't you think I mean because here's a wicked judge and God is like so far over on that end of the spectrum don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night will he keep putting them off I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly, quickly. Joseph was in prison for 12 years and in just a day, he was second in command in Egypt. What can God not do? Do you understand this? For 12 years, no no glimmer of hope and any glimmer of hope that came, two years went by and that glimmer faded. No hope whatsoever, but in just a moment, just like that, he's second in command in Egypt. That's a fairy tale. Isn't it? Or it's truth. One or the other. And so we cling, we keep crying out for justice. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find who have faith on the earth? How many will he find that are still crying out to him for his intervention miraculously? Or because of our hardship, because of our pain, because of our disappointment, because of our loss, we've just created a theology that now says God's just gonna strengthen us until we finally get to heaven and he finally sets us free. I mean, I I don't understand why we pray for one and they get healed and we pray for another and they don't. I don't understand why we pray for resurrection and it doesn't happen and yet other countries seem to pray for resurrection and it happens. I just, I don't understand but here's what I know. The God of the Bible says, you call on me and I will hear you and I will answer you. I can do even more than you would even think about asking me to do so ask me. You come boldly before my throne because I have made a way for you to do it. I don't want him to return and find a jaded and cynical group of people who because of hardship or difficulty have stopped asking. I don't want to be one who just because of disappointment and heartache has failed to just continue to ask him to do the the miraculous. I know the sting of disappointment, but I refuse to be one of those who becomes cynical and develops a theology on my experience and not what this book teaches me. And here's the thing, you don't just come to the throne room for stuff. If you're just coming for stuff, you'll probably get disappointed a lot. You're coming for him. 
We come for him. He is our exceeding great reward. And every once in a while, he breaks in and does something that we can't even imagine that he would do. I'm gonna invite the, the worship team to come back. And I wanna end tonight, today, I've got a, a video clip. It's a five minute video clip. So worship team, you have a few seconds, don't panic. Um, but I'm gonna play this video while they're getting ready. And uh, I want you to watch it. It was on CBN and I came across it a few weeks ago and uh, I wanted to share it with you. As we At an age when other children were enjoying life's innocent moments, Marlene Kleps had to face its cruelest tortures. Weighing less than two pounds at birth, she developed cerebral palsy, which left her crippled. In a public school, this wasn't easy. Not very many playmates, I mean, because what could you go do, or you know, who could you go spend the night with? This wasn't the only tragedy wrenching young Marlene. When she was a year old, her parents died in a motorcycle accident. She was reared by great-grandparents and later by foster parents. But at 12 years of age, when some friends brought her to a youth rally, she committed her life to God. I just thought that if I was born with cerebral palsy, I must be born with it because God created me that way. I didn't realize he wanted people healed. During her teenage years, Marlene suffered numerous spasms caused by muscular surgery. These attacks were sometimes so violent, they left her attendants with broken bones. After one severe spasm, Marlene was left almost totally paralyzed. Her vision, along with the rest of her condition, grew progressively worse. As a last resort, in December of 1980, Marlene was taken from her home in Missouri to the world's finest hospital, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. January 5th, 1981. Spasticity has progressed. Spasms infrequent, but can last for months. Still will not move her four extremities. March 25th. Still has no voluntary finger movements. Marlene has been here for over two months. Finances from her estate are practically depleted at this time. will be discharged in approximately two weeks' period of time unless there has been significant progress. She will be dismissed to a nursing home in Missouri. Being sent to a nursing home was Marlene's greatest fear. And as best I could talk, I just yelled at him and I just said, God, stop. In other words, just get out of here. But he didn't. And I, you could just feel his love and his presence and it came all around me and it was really, really warm. And he showed me a vision that he was gonna heal me. She pleaded with God and felt he told her of all things to have the nurse look in the yellow pages under churches the next morning. I started flipping through them and um, it glowed off the page. It said, open Bible, Scott Emerson, and a phone number. She started asking me lots of questions about what the church believed. Did we believe in healing? Do we pray for the sick? And she said, okay, you're the one. You can come see me. And I thought, I can come see you. So a skeptical Scott Emerson answered the call. He arrived at the hospital in a pinstripe suit. Marlene told him he looked identical to the man praying for her in the vision. Emerson then took Marlene to his church. She had to be strapped in because her body was jerking so wildly. Emerson had never had a miracle take place in his church. They gathered around me to pray, and he said, I don't know how to pray, but he asked God to heal me from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. And then they asked if I wanted to stand up on faith. So would you like to stand by faith? <laughs> And immediately upon lifting her out of the chair, we began to feel uh, 
strength coming into her legs. And she took a hold of the back of the pew and she just slept. And my feet hit the floor and I felt the floor for the first time in my life. Her knees and her toes pointed together. Everything was pointed in. But with each step that she took, they started to straighten out. If it has her toes and her knees straightened out and she got stronger and stronger, she took a few steps on her own and then was literally running around the church. The Mayo doctors needed only to discharge Marlene to her home in Missouri. From the hospital records, you returned to the rehabilitation unit that evening walking, something you'd never done since your admission to the unit. And when I saw you back at the clinic some weeks later, you'd improved even more, and all signs of previous abnormality were gone. You were able to walk perfectly normal, and your eyesight had improved so much that you did not need to wear spectacles. We were all very thrilled and happy with the outcome of your condition. Marlene's life has been normal now for 15 years. She's attended Missouri Wesleyan College and traveled through the Midwest sharing her amazing story. I was in a desperate situation and you know there was no place else to go but to Jesus Christ with my life and um, here I am. You know I, I'm healed, I'm normal, there's nothing that I can't do. I mean I, that everyone else does. I've always believed in the power of God and I've read the Bible stories like the, the lame man that Peter and John said in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the Bible says a man went walking and leaping and praising God. We were seeing that happen, not something 2,000 years ago, but something that day. Stand with me if you would. <clears throat> What's our default? What's our default? When I have a headache, what's my default? Excedrin, ibuprofen, Tylenol. When I have a cold, what's my default? When the doctor says cancer, what's my default? When someone hurts me or talks about me behind my back, what's my default? Meaning, do I go first to the throne of God in that moment and just say, God, you're here. You're here. I, I'm scared. I don't know what this means. God, I'm in pain. Uh, but you're here. You're here. You never abandon me. You never leave me. You never forsake me. God, bring healing to me. Bring strength to me. Bring grace to me. Help me to understand the, the process I'm in. Show me what's in your heart right now. Is that our default? I don't care if we go to the doctor. I don't care if we take medications. I don't care if we uh, go to counselors. I don't care about any of this stuff. But Because here's the thing. They're not our help. God is our help. If any drug ever works, it's only because of God. Only. If any advice anybody gives you works, it's only by the grace of God. And it doesn't even have to be a Christian giving you the advice. That's how big God is. God can give you advice from a television show you're watching, although he gives you better advice from his word. But you understand, this is the God we serve. Don't go back into religion. Don't go back into this room, this bench. Don't go back into the, the methods and the programs. 
It's not about that stuff. Don't, don't be undisciplined in your life. Don't just say, oh, I'll just pick and choose the parts of the Bible I want to believe and the parts I don't want to believe. And don't let the pain and the hardships of life cause you to be too realistic. Trust that God in a moment could intervene in your situation. Don't ever walk into this church service with any type of sickness or disease and leave without someone praying for you. I don't care if it's arthritis. I don't care if it's a, a toe that you lost. I mean, God can bring a toe back. You don't think God can grow whatever needs to grow back, back? He's only limited by us not going into his presence. And so as we end today, the worship team is gonna lead us in one final song, that God is able. He is able. He's able. In just a moment, to restore, to heal, to deliver, to just give you joy, peace, hope in the midst of whatever you're facing. And I'm gonna open this front to you. If you wanna come and find a place to pray by yourself, come and find a place. If you need prayer, I'm gonna ask you to come and stand across this front and our prayer team's gonna come. We're gonna come and pray with you. Uh, the worship team's gonna lead us in this song. Then I'll pray a prayer of dismissal. But uh, if you need to come, you need to respond for whatever reason. You need to cast aside religion. You need to cast aside the, the realism, the realistic nature. Whatever it is you need to cast aside today, come and do it. Come into his presence one final moment before you leave. And just let him minister to you. Greater than all we seek, He's greater than all.